a copy. I think there may still be a few back there on the table if you have not gotten one. We are in the last chapter and the end of the first paragraph looking at what the, the, the great day of the last judgment is. Uh, just the fact, the simple fact that it is in the scriptures, it is revealed to us uh, what, what will happen on that day. These are the things we've been considering in this first paragraph. And the last uh, clause in this paragraph, it's a very long sentence, uh, the last part of this, almost half the paragraph, um, is looking to the extent the extent of what will be judged on that great day. And uh, let's read the paragraph, and notice especially uh, this last half of paragraph 1 of the Last Judgment. God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. We looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 last week. That's how we closed our time together. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. One of the things we were looking at last week that we might be clear on this is that, of course, our standing before God is in Christ alone. That is how we have a perfect righteousness that can bear up under the scrutiny of his perfect holiness. And yet, there is an emphasis upon uh, the fruit of our lives that the scriptures continually brings forward in referring to this great day of judgment. And we're going to see this morning, not only does that have to do with the, uh, the proof of the genuineness of the confession of faith of many, we'll see passages as we go through this chapter, uh, recognizing the reality there are those who made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ in this world, in this life, uh, and yet they will stand on that great day of judgment to uh, have confirmed before the world that theirs was a false profession. And how are those matters discerned? How is that brought to light? Of course, God knows. God sees our hearts. He, he always knows. He knows who we are beyond that. He knows his own secret counsel. He knows how any of us come to life in his son and it is through his grace and his hand according to his plan and his love that he has shown toward his children and choosing them it's all of grace and so of course god's not uh, left in any confusion or uncertainty about who will receive the pardon and who will receive the judgment on that day but it is important that his justice might be magnified to make evident to the entire world there what he has known all along and show the proof of these things that his justice might be glorified, that it might not seem uh, just some secretive or arbitrary decision, but truly 
those who have walked in obedience in their sanctification and their new life that he has given them through his son, uh, that is going to be brought forward as the evidence upon which uh, their claim to faith in Christ is judged before all men. And likewise, the, the, uh, those who will receive judgment, it, it's not simply that they were passed over by God's gracious choice, but it is specifically for their lives of rebellion and ungodliness, their wickedness that they are judged. They're not being judged for something that they didn't do. They're being judged for the things that they did do. And they cannot, no one will be able to protest on that day against the justice of God on that last great judgment. And so let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 because not only does this call to view the matter upon which we are judged or according to which we are judged, but the extent of that, that God will make known or make manifest or clear things that had long been obscured or hidden or done in secret. Not only deeds, uh, not only words, but even thoughts. God has noted and recorded and will be brought forward the thoughts, words, and deeds of all mankind on that day as we hear the sentence pronounced upon us. And so in the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 12, of course, this is the conclusion of his sermon, the preacher, as he has been preaching about the vanity of life, as he's been observing the very best that life offers, uh, the greatest pleasures that can be enjoyed. Uh, none of it can last. None of it can be truly satisfying. Uh, none of it has a durability in that sense. And it all drives one to conclude that if this life, this life under the sun, if this were all that we could consider, then the conclusion would be a hopeless one indeed. But he, he preaches this sermon driving to the conclusion that there is a God in heaven, that life does not um, experience its fullness in this life under the sun, that there is a life to come, there is uh, a creator in heaven, and that we will stand before him, that life doesn't end at the grave. That's the lesson of this book. And to drive us to lead a life of wisdom in the days that we have um, in light of what will follow. And so let's just look at chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. And the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. And he goes on giving this description, very figurative description of the body breaking down, of us losing our vitality, our sight, our hearing, our strength. This is the picture of the decline of life. And, and eventually, what? Eventually, it's death. Um, in verse 5, they are afraid also of what is high. Terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along. And desire fails. 
because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And so this life is short and full of misery. It's full of sorrow. It's full of the consequences of sin and the reality of sin. And there must be an eternal perspective on this or it would all be vanity and hopelessness. And so as we consider then, there's this reference to the dust returning to the earth and the spirit returning to God who gave it. We looked at that several weeks ago. But notice this reference uh, as he brings this book to its ultimate conclusion in verse 13. What is the, what is the message, um, the application that is pressed home upon the readers of this book? The end of the matter, in verse 13, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so again, a, a biblical, a wise perspective on life does not just look to this life in terms of seeking pleasure, seeking to find some um, ameliorating experience to offset all of the obvious and undeniable suffering and the shortness of life, the declining nature of life, the age that uh, carries us all swiftly to our deaths. We must live our lives wisely, fearing God and keeping his commandments, uh, considering this matter of our duty. This is the whole duty of man. And again, this all in light of not just the shortness of life and our experiences here as we know them, but the reality, the inescapable truth that God has revealed that we will all stand before him. At the end of all things, we will stand before him on this day of judgment, and God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. Nothing is going to escape the, the retribution, the just deserts, the reward, the judgment of God Almighty. He will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the scope of this judgment is another emphasis in our confession that reflects this matter uh, throughout the scriptures that this day of judgment is all-encompassing we will give an account for everything look also at Romans chapter 2 verse 16 Romans chapter 2 and I want you to come with me up to verse 1 because this chapter leading up to our verse in verse 16 mentions and, and has even as a focus judgment, particularly how we are to live life in light of the judgment of God, his righteous judgment. Begin in verse 1 with me in Romans chapter 2. 
Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now there are several things, so much in that those verses, but several things that I think would be good for us to uh, attend to this morning. The first of all is that there is no excuse for any of us, no matter what degree of association we have had with the special revelation of God, which he gave first to Israel and now has entrusted to his church in the New Testament to teach and preach throughout the world, even those that that word has not reached, even those that he describes here as the Gentiles, um, who have not received the law, notice there in verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. Their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. In other words, God has so imprinted us with his image, which we still bear even though we are fallen in Adam, we nonetheless still have a, a, an understanding uh, which we can fight against, we can suppress, we can sin against, certainly. But nonetheless, there is this 
what he, he describes as a conscience that bears witness within us, and this work of the law that is written on our hearts. Mankind throughout all history, regardless of how degenerate and far he has fallen, I don't know that we could find a civilization, a generation, where there wasn't some expression of condemnation of certain things. That uh, there, there, there is a sin, if you will. There's a category of sin. That is an operative category in every generation of the history of the world. There are those things that we all condemn and oftentimes condemn rightly. And that's what Paul begins by pointing to, that we are all judges ourselves. What does that imply? That there is a standard of, of right and wrong. There is such a thing as right behavior and wrong or sinful behavior. And we all, we can so easily be offended and outraged. Our sense of justice, which we have, uh, cries out when we see wrong, especially done toward us. That's the, the clearest place where we still see that operating. Uh, we, we get angry when we're done wrong. Uh, this this uh, throughout the world, throughout history. It's a testament to us that we do understand there are things that are wrong. We condemn them. We get angry at them. We judge them. But what we often overlook that Paul calls us to reckon with is that we are doing many of those same things ourselves. We understand that there are things that are wrong, but we don't pause to consider that we ourselves are guilty. If there is a standard, and it is wrong for people to treat us certain ways, that means there is such a thing as justice. There is right and wrong. And we're admitting to that in how we view the actions of others. And so what does this all mean? It means that we don't have an excuse. Even those that have not encountered as directly the special revelation of God, His Word, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, there is a sufficient witness against us in the law being written on our hearts, in the fact that we have a conscience, we, we have the capacity to recognize right from wrong. That is going to testify against us when we are called before God and he begins recounting in his record all of the things that we have done. Uh, we can't say, well, we just didn't know. We didn't know that anyone cared. We didn't know that these were things that were wrong. No, we won't be able to say that. Again, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The other thing that I think it's helpful for us to note before we move on is that it is the law of God. It's imperfectly remembered. It is, um, it, it is resisted in the heart of the sinful man. But it is the law of God. That is the standard of right and wrong. Um, you, you will often talk to people in our day and time who want to have some sort of standard. They want to have some cultural norms or 
some uh, taboos in society that are obviously harmful and hurtful, but they stop short of being willing to recognize that we need God's word or his standard to provide that to us. Apart from that, it's just something that will move with the tide. It will shift and blow in the wind. Uh, it will be something that society imposes upon itself, and that is the blind leading the blind. Uh, that is the child being its own parent. Um, we've seen what societies have uh, by agreement approved of and said, now this is right. We see that in our own day. Uh, even things that are flying in the face of reality, in the face of God's word, what we know is right and wrong, what will be blessed, what will prove harmful. Uh, we have God's word as the lamp for our feet and the light for our path. And we see civilizations, because of that rebellious heart, uh, pushing back against the standard that God has imprinted upon us. And so we see cultures again and again trying to normalize wrong behavior, trying to even condemn right, righteous behavior. Uh, and so a society can't come up with their own standard and that lead to any, any uh, semblance of the truth. But uh, it is God's law that provides the standard. And then the last thing is uh, we've seen throughout this passage that God's law is the standard. Notice there in verse 12, all who've sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Uh, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Uh, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before the God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. This is the right function of the law. It doesn't save us. It doesn't solve the problem of our sin. But it does define sin. It defines and describes and reveals God's holiness, His character, and what He says is righteous or obedience. And so the law of God has a very important function. It is not the path of salvation per se in the sense that it can't solve the problem of our sin but it is absolutely essential as a part of the gospel to define sin. How can we repent? If the gospel call is to repent of our sin and be saved, to turn away from our sin and return to God by faith in his son Jesus as the savior of sinners, sin will appear again and again and again in the gospel message in terms of the concept. You have to repent of your sin. You need your sin paid for by the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross. Over and over and over, we'll see that concept in the very gospel message. And we must have God's law to define it, or the gospel can be turned to represent the very opposite of what it does. All, all a person or a society needs to do, again, as we said, is redefine those terms, redefine sin, and you can completely turn the gospel on its head if you attempt to separate the gospel from God's law. It's something that the church in the last 150 years in particular has endeavored to do with disastrous results. We have people even today 
uh, who have gone so far as to separate the Christian life from any connection with the life in this world. There are those who are teaching that um, if you are looking to God to take you to heaven when you die, that's where you'll enter into his kingdom, and nothing here in this life has any bearing on that, no bearing upon your service to Christ. That's a misunderstanding. Uh, They're even teaching the very opposite of what God says in terms of saying things like, um, it's just a matter of this life. It's, it's not a part of God's kingdom. He has no concern um, whether uh, abortion is legal or not in a, in a society. He has no concern whether uh, children who haven't been born are killed or not because that's just happening in this life. That doesn't have anything to do with his kingdom. Uh, it has gone to those extremes. And this all stems from a separation, an unnatural, unbiblical, unwarranted separation of God's law from the true scriptural gospel. And we see that Paul certainly didn't have this concept. Here he is writing Romans, and he is going to be presenting some of the clearest presentation of the gospel in the whole of scripture in this book and what is he talking about he's talking about god's judgment he's talking about the need for salvation he's setting the stage to share the gospel with his readers more clearly but he's defining sin and he is also warning in the verses we've read of the judgment that is coming upon sin and all of that is necessary biblical context for the gospel to be presented in biblically Uh, Apart from that, you're left with no compelling reason. Why should I believe? And what should I repent of? There are no good answers to that if you separate the gospel message from God's word and particularly his law. Notice in verse 15, these Gentiles show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Notice verse 16. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, we've seen so many passages already. We're about to look at more where the law of God consistently is the standard by which that great judgment is rendered. The secrets of men are judged. The deeds of men are judged. The words of men are judged. By what standard? By the law of God. By what he had already told us, whether in the scriptures or even in the imprint of his character and his image upon man that he made in his image. We know certain things are right and certain things are wrong because of that being written on our hearts. And so God's law is the standard. But how does Paul describe that in verse 16? He says, On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So, again, there's going to be no confusion as we keep reading Romans. Paul's not saying that God's law is is related to the gospel in the sense that God gave his law so that we could obey him and earn his favor. 
and earn our standing before him and earn the blessings of the covenant of our own efforts and earn an entrance into eternal life. No, that's not in any way the connection of the law here. But there is such a connection that Paul can say the law is a part of the gospel message so that he can, he can refer to it as God judging the secrets of men according to the gospel that Paul preached. So his gospel includes the very law of God. In fact, Paul would say elsewhere that his gospel message, his gospel ministry, could be rightly described as preaching nothing but Christ and him crucified, but also could simultaneously be described as preaching the whole counsel of God. And that he would be innocent of the blood of all men, as we read in Acts 20, as he is uh, pleading earnestly with the elders from Ephesus. He is innocent of the blood of all men because he did not refrain from preaching the whole counsel of God. And so the gospel that Paul preached, the apostolic gospel, is proclaiming the entire revealed will of God in the scriptures from the standard of God's righteousness uh, all the way beginning with the creative power of God bringing this world into being to then him being the lawgiver and there being his standard of righteousness by which all will be judged to then the revelation of the one who came to save us from the guilt of our sin and deliver us not only from the consequences of it but from the power and presence of sin in our lives by the ongoing work which will be perfected and completed when we are glorified to deliver us from the effects of sin from the presence of sin from the power of sin in our lives so that we become the people that god calls us to be when he says be holy as i am holy this is what he is making his people to become all right, well, let's look at Romans 14, and we won't be looking at the entire chapter each time, but these are important issues um, that, again, we can't always predict what errors will be taught next. The evil one is crafty, and the scriptures refer to the doctrines of demons when describing the teaching that is contrary to scripture. And the evil one is the one who is motivating and working and stirring uh, this twisting and perversion of the truth that is uh, sold today under the rubric of two-kingdom theology. It's a heresy, and it is a teaching of the kingdom of darkness, uh, undermining and attacking the lordship of Jesus Christ over all of life and the standard and power of and authority of God's word over all of life. Let's look at Romans chapter 14. And again, this is on the other side of chapters that we hopefully are familiar with um, in the pronouncement of um, guilt upon the entire world, the message of hope in salvation of God by faith in Jesus Christ the, the Son and Messiah of His provision, which dates back to the Father of the faithful, the Father of those who believe, Abraham. 
all of these chapters that intervene. And then after Romans 2, we come back to this theme of judgment again in Romans 14. Paul lives close to the thought that he will stand before God and give an account, and he wants us to as well. And in Romans chapter 14, verse 7, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. You see Paul's mentality, how he approaches life. He is the bondservant that he describes himself over and over as. He is living before the face of the Lord. Every moment, this is his desire. Uh, he's, he's going to live for the Lord and to the Lord, and he is going to die for and to the Lord. He belongs to the Lord. And so that is said to lead up to verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. What is Paul wanting the focus and the emphasis to be? It's very easy for us to revert back to our old sinful ways when the only meaningful experience of recognizing sin, it used to be what? When we would look at the behavior of others. And that was where we would recognize, oh, there is sin in this world. Look over there. Look at that person. And our sense of justice will be outraged by the behavior of others. Paul's not saying that there's not sin over there. But he wants us to remember what Jesus taught in Matthew 7. Never forget, first of all, that all sin is going to appear before the judgment seat of God and will be paid in full with the recompense either either by the blood of Jesus being presented on that behalf or justice will be served in full measure so again don't don't have as your chief concern well i have to make sure that this is addressed over here either it's a brother or a sister in christ and we need to pray for them and help them to grow in sanctification and not uh, revert into um, a self-righteous judgment or they're not a part of God's family and the Lord is certainly able to deal with that sin what should our chief and first concern be that we are going to stand before that day uh, notice there in verse 13 therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother our, our chief concern ought to be that we not contribute to the sin of a brother or a sister. And it's not to say that we shouldn't have a, a sense of morality, that we shouldn't be able to recognize that which is wrong in one another. We're called to do that. We're called to do it humbly. We're called to do it with trembling, knowing that 
as we read in Galatians 6 verse 1, even when it's a clear case of a fallen, uh, someone falling into sin, they're to be restored in a spirit of gentleness, knowing that uh, but for God's grace we too would fall. All right, the last verses we'll look at this morning, Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. We'll begin in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Again, just as, just as Paul, Paul just made this reference in Romans 2, Jesus, in his teaching here, James, refers to the same thing in the epistle from James. This reference in verse 37, For by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. It's not a reference to the fact that we could be so righteous with our mouths that God would look upon any of us and say, Well, I find that in, in your speech you have been so righteous as to receive commendation, and there is no need for pardon. I declare you righteous before me. None of us are in that position. But what Jesus and Paul and James are all referring to is this matter of if we are professing to be the people of God, saved by His grace, then we should be able to, and God will be looking for and pointing to the fruit of that. Notice there in verse 33, this is about fruit. It's about the proof of who you are. Either make the tree good and the fruit good, or the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. That's what this is about. It's about pointing to the fruit that is the proof of what kind of tree you are, what is in your heart. Are you truly a child of God? Well, there should be evidence that can be pointed to and observed, and there should be agreement. There will be rejoicing in heaven, and not just rejoicing, but God's decree and His pardon. Um, there will be no room for any to protest. Well, this person had no fruit. This person had nothing as evidence that they were your child, and yet you let them uh, come forth into uh, your eternal reward. There won't be that on that great day of judgment. Uh, the God, God tells us in his word, there will be fruit. You think of even someone with such a brief um, portion of their life experiencing the grace of God. It's the man dying on the cross by Jesus. Even he and those probably just moments, possibly an hour or two, but minutes. What, what did God do in his life? He had such a change of heart that manifested itself. He reproved his fellow thief. He confessed his faith to the Lord Jesus, 
And he called for others to stop uh, their mocking of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is no such thing as a fruitless believer in Jesus. And that's something that should be soberly prayed over in our own lives, that we're not coming to the Lord confident in our own fruit as in obedience, uh, having any merit before him. But we should be looking for his gracious hand, bringing forth the fruit of what we believe he has created us to be, the new creation in Christ Jesus. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we give you thanks for your grace to us. We thank you that salvation is all of grace. Your electing grace, your sending your Son, your work of regeneration, giving us the experience of a new birth, the gift of faith to believe in your Son, the gift of repentance, and then the gift of your Holy Spirit to empower and produce in us what you command. And so, Lord, we will confess on that day that salvation belongs to the Lord, and we will sing the praises of your grace and not our obedience. We do pray, Lord, that you would help us to be more earnest in proving and testing and showing forth the, the truth of our profession of faith in your Son. That we'd be more earnest in living as becomes the followers of Jesus. And we pray that you would come and meet with us and bless us to worship you in spirit and in truth with the rest who have gathered in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.